Welcome to a new episode of Streamed and Screened, except, oops, this is not a new episode. This is an older episode. This is episode 16, Halloween Fun, from October 30th, 2020. Last week was summer blockbusters from the archives. This is Halloween stuff from the archives, because Halloween is right around the corner. And we're all on vacation. We're taking taking some, some much-needed breaks last week and this week. And uh, so stick around. Here it is from the past streamed and screened back when we used to call it just to be nominated we'll have links in the show notes to everything that you could possibly want to hear that we are talking about here is chris and bruce and jared from the past take it away previous incarnations of us hi there welcome to just to be nominated a podcast about movies distributed by lee enterprises the show is hosted by me Chris Lay, the podcast operations manager for Lee, and I am co-hosting with Bruce Miller, the editor of the Sioux City Journal, along with Jared McNett, a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City, Iowa. Last time you heard from us, we went all in on animated films, but this week we're going the opposite direction, and we decided to get into some spooky stuff for Halloween. So expect a bunch of movies that creeped us the heck out, especially ones when we were kids. We'll have some horror classics for sure, but also some curveballs, maybe, including an unexpected pick that you can stream on Disney+. Plus. You can check the show notes for links to where you can stream the movies that we talked about and discover older episodes of our show as well. The show kicks off after this short pause. I see the real Fargo, the movie Fargo is on, is it Netflix? I should go back and watch it. Still a perfect movie. Oh, I love that one so much. You know, it's funny. That was the year I went to the Academy Awards and they were announcing, you know, and the nominees are Fargo. And I'm like screaming. And it's like nobody else screams apparently at the Academy <laughs> Awards. So I guess it was my bad, as you like to say. Have you gone back and listened to the like to the video of it? Can you hear yourself? Yeah, I didn't tape it, so I didn't have it. But you know, come on, you gotta give a shout out to the home folks. Well, sure, yeah. And it still should have won. Um, if you look back now, English Patient, really, that shouldn't have won. Yeah, I can't. I can't tell you anything about that movie now. You wouldn't watch it again, but you would watch Fargo again. I would say the Coen brothers are one of those rare ones that ultimately did end up winning for what's their best movie, which doesn't happen yeah. that much with the Oscars. Yeah, there won't be any any, any concession Oscars for them down the line. No, they're good. They're good. If anything, I feel like they will maybe not get nominated or awards for things because they've done so well in the past. There's no makeups for them. They've they've already you know secured their their, their place as far as uh, the academy is concerned. Yeah, and uh, and for today we get to talk about a genre that's just been completely ignored by the uh, Academy Awards entirely. Yeah, well let's um for everybody at home let's go back and do like a brief intro. Uh, we can start with Bruce because I'm the old one. Is that why? Age before beauty. That's that's how it goes. You know. Down. I know that. Well, I'm Bruce Miller. I'm the editor of the Sioux City Journal, and I've also written about entertainment for more than 40 years. So all these things that you guys saw on second, third, and fourth run, I saw them originally. Uh, I'm uh, Jared McNett. I am a uh, reporter for the uh, Mason City, or for the Globe Gazette in uh, Mason City, Iowa. And uh, I'm definitely, at least for these purposes of today, the uh, resident uh, 
horror movie expert, although when I was a kid, I was absolutely uh, terrified by horror movies and was afraid to even see the cover art at uh, Blockbuster. So, yeah, uh, the Ghoulies one is what jumps out at me in my memory. That's like the the most intense box art ever. Yeah. And, and I am Chris Lay, uh, formerly an archivist at the Wisconsin State Journal. Now I am working uh, as the podcast operations manager at Lee Enterprises. We're recording this on the 22nd. It'll drop on uh, the 30th. Is this where you need this, this spooky music that goes? Ooh. Yeah, cue the, uh, the haunted. Yeah, so the theme that we're looking at for this week is it's not necessarily horror films, but it's movies that specifically disturbed us that we maybe were very you know shaken by. Or, you know, stuck with us uh, either at a young age. Jared, uh, last last time that we talked, kind of threw this additional curveball of, is it kinder trauma? Is that the... Yes, 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 yes. Basically, like movies that aren't necessarily, you know, scary in a broader sense. But for a kid, there's something about them that is unsettling or particularly scary. So that kind of got thrown in there as well as a an option as far as an avenue that we can add on to. And I definitely have a couple of those. Yeah. We can just start right off. Uh, Bruce, do you want to go first? Yeah, I want, I want to go first because I had one that traumatized me for, I mean, even to this day, I think I'm still traumatized by it. As a little kid, I would always lock the, the basement door before I go to bed. It was like constant. I had to go before I went to bed. I checked that the basement door was locked because I was afraid that Mr. Sardonicus, was living down in our basement. Mr. Sardonicus was this guy who stole a lottery ticket from his father's grave, and it froze his face into this like scary kind of look. And you'd see him, you go, ah, it's Mr. Sardonicus. Well, the cool thing about the movie is one of those William Castle films in the 60s, where you went in and you got to vote if he saw mercy or if something bad happened to him. And they gave you a little ticket that you would hold under a light so it would glow. And then when the time came in the movie, you had to hold it up and then decide if he's going to, you know, get the good ending or the bad ending. And I didn't know this until many, many years later, but there was no good ending. Even though you got that little piece of paper, he was always gonna come to a bad end because they never filmed a good ending. To this day, I will not, if I see that, and it's been on cable, um, if I see Mr. Sardonicus is gonna be on, I will not watch it because it scared the hell out of me. Uh, Bruce, do you still have that uh, ticket from that screening of like the, the voting thing? You know, I save almost everything, but that would be something I would definitely throw away because I would fear that he would come after me to get the ticket because I voted against him. Oh, no. <laughs> but you and everybody else, apparently. Yeah, well, apparently. I mean, you know, if you stack the room and said everybody's going to vote now, good things for him, they couldn't find the real because they never had the real. And if you look, it's probably today's, you know, some one of those faces that you think, oh, special effects. They did a big makeup job on him. Very much kind of Phantom of the Opera, Lon Chaney looks. But he'd be the kind of person that kind of jump around the corner and go, ah, and there you are. That was my first trauma. 
William Castle had just such great promotions for that stuff because there's that one that you talked about. And then with like the Tingler with uh, Vincent Price. The which Tingler is the, where the seats would vibrate. Yeah. yeah, which is another amazing one. Is a really fun movie to watch even now. Yeah, the seats would vibrate. And then even uh, House on Haunted Hill, they had like skeletons that would float over the audience during like the final parts of the movie. Like w- William Castle just got that promotional aspects so perfectly right he was what we call a showman he would really make the whole experience and that's what they want now ironically is they want you to feel like you're a part of the movie so maybe he wasn't so dumb after all and i I mean speaking from you know my my previous position working in the archives at the state journal um and i mean anybody can you know go in and access this stuff now with either like a newspaper subscription uh or newspapers.com newspapers.com yeah which i think um like has some partnership with yes lee enterprise you'll have to you know whoever has like a digital subscription you can you know check that out you can look at everything for that but you can go back and find the ads for these screenings at, you know, whatever your, you know, neighborhood Orpheum theater was, or, um, you know, in Madison, we had like the Orpheum was right across from the Capitol theater. And there were multiple theaters, you know, within like a few blocks of each other that all were, you know, it would be like, oh, we're going to screen, you know, some Abbott and Costello and some uh, Three Stooges shorts and kids come in costume and, you know, you get like a free mask or a free, you know, spider ring and all this stuff is advertised in the paper. And it just, it sounds so fascinating. And uh, yeah, William Castle, like you said, uh, Jared and Bruce echoed was an absolute genius of that. Okay. So which one's next? Who's going for the next one? You want to go, Jared? Yeah, sure. I'll go ahead and go. Um, So my first pick is uh, The Conjuring from uh, 2013, uh, directed by uh, James Wan. Um, And I think, that one in particular is just a perfectly calibrated scare machine. Um, from how long James Wan had kind of been working in horror movies to that point, because he'd already done Saw, and I think even maybe the first Insidious had come out before The Conjuring, if I remember right. Um, he obviously learned a lot about pacing and fake outs and just creating a mood, and I think it really just pays off almost perfectly for The Conjuring. Um, when I saw it, I actually saw it, at a theater in uh, International Falls, uh, Minnesota, right up on the border with Canada. My friend and I were up there doing like a, uh, a trip to the, the national park. And then we had to go back to our uh, campsite after watching that movie. Terrible idea. Wasn't able to sleep uh, at all that night after uh, watching that movie because it is really, really effective. So what I liked about it was the, uh, you didn't have to have these kind of scary things. It was just simple stuff like the wood would be creaky or the door would be kind of ajar. It was all that kind of cool stuff where it's, it's like, these are things that I remember as horror when I was a kid. And it was enough to make you scared at night not to leave your bed. Yeah, it's kind of it kind of learned like the best lessons from something like the House on Haunted Hill or some of those early 50s and 60s ones of just like, you can do a lot with just sound design and like very simple little Mr. X. I spent sometime yesterday rewatching and watching for the first time a handful of like ghost movies uh to try and you know see if anything would be worth adding to my list and i was really you know surprised at how many of them are you know just generally about processing trauma um like i i watched oculus um oculus was the one that kind of jumped out the most you know with um you know, like a family and death and, you know, all that stuff. And it just, it felt 
like looking at the shows that are on HBO right now between um, The Third Day and Lovecraft Country and, you know, even a year ago with Watchmen, a lot of the subtext or just flat out text is all about, you know, processing grief and trauma. And it's difficult to watch some of these things right now and confront them as we as as a planet are experiencing this mass trauma in and of itself. So, uh, yeah. That was uh, something I weirdly was just having a conversation too about with a friend um, last night because those are end up to me being some of my favorite horror movies, the ones that are really dealing with like um, the ways trauma can affect people. And if I ever did like a uh, like a programmed like block of movies, I would do it around that with horror movies in particular because there's some really great examples of that. Like The Changeling is a perfect example of like trauma and how that hangs over someone. Or even, um, it's not as strictly horror in the same way, but um, that movie The Vanishing from the early 90s is another good example of that. There's a lot of that in horror because horror is definitely one of those ones that is never afraid to just like stare into the void. Yeah, and you kind of get, you know, like the double, double-sided double end of it. But like people talk about, obviously, horror is about confronting this death, you know, thing that we're all going to have to deal with at some point in life. Um, but it's also the ghost of kind of going backwards and the things that you have, have experienced uh, individually getting, you know, dredged up and, you know, turned into these literal festering wounds as opposed to just the figurative ones. What's yours, Chris? My pick is going to be a, a slight, uh, it's going to be a nice hard, hard left turn. Um, and it's the first of two, I think that kind of fit this sort of kinder trauma um, angle but uh, the first one I've got is Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It was traumatizing for you, really? I distinctly remember watching it as a kid, and it's the, the earliest memory that I have of seeing something and then having that thing end up keeping me awake or infect my my dreams. And it wasn't even, um, I mean, like the most notorious scene in that film is the large Marge scene with the, you know, nightmare trucker. Okay. But I didn't even get to that. So for anybody who doesn't know, Pee Wee's Big Adventure in 1985, directed by Tim Burton, um, based on the stage show and subsequent TV show from Paul Rubens. Um, and it's about, he has this, you know, crazy wacky bike that is stolen. And so he has to get it back. Well, the bike is stolen after he chains it up to a a clown, like this, you know, mechanical clown that's outside of a strip mall. And when he comes back, there's just the the chains laying at the feet of the clown. And there's this like low angle shot looking up at the clown where the clown is so menacing. And I, I can't remember if there's, you know, some kind of like a uh, like a vocal modulator uh, that's, you know, makes the, the laughing of the clown that much more intense. Um, and I, I remember laying in bed after, you know, I think I might have even like that might have been it for me. Um, but I remember laying in bed and, you know, imagining that clown being in my room, leering over the bed and that it just. Not not intended as nightmare fuel, and yet uh, it definitely gassed up my tank. <laughs> How do you feel about Pee Wee now? Do you like the show, or are you like, ugh, I can't stand Pee Wee still? Oh, I love Pee Wee. I mean, I, I was I was raised, you know, watching the show, 
um, on Saturday mornings. Yeah, I, I have all the love in the world. I thought the the Netflix movie that came out was like four or five years ago um, was fantastic. Paul Rubens, as far as I'm concerned, is an absolute genius. Uh, and I and I don't even really have that big of a thing with clowns. Like clowns aren't scary because they're they're clowns. Um, they're you know scary because they are when they're intended to be scary. Um, so it's not like that stuck with me. Oh, I feel so bad because they love Pee Wee, <laughs> and I do too. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I mean, I, I've gone back and rewatched the movie a bunch, and it's uh, it certainly holds up. It's a fantastic film, but there's it's one of those ones where you go back and you rewatch it as an adult, and it's like, oh man, this this really was way more messed up than I remember. <laughs> it is amazing, like those kind of shows that are mostly geared for kids, but do have that kind of undercurrent. Because there's that one, or also have. Uh, Bruce, this is definitely more in your wheelhouse time-wise, but have you, either of you actually watched through all of H.R. Puffin stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That one. That one's also pretty, like, messed up, or like, in terms of just how surreal it is. It was supposed to be kind of a drug, a drug thing. Uh, if you were high on something, you would really enjoy H.R. Puffin stuff. If you're a kid, you watch it and you say, those are really bad costumes. Why are they wearing bad costumes? And Witchy Pooh was always one that she'd be like, oh my God, what is that? She was scary as hell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I remember. HR, puffin stuff. Who's your friend when things get tough? Can't do a little, <laughs> but you can't do enough. It's HR, puffin stuff. From Sid and Marty Croft. Right. Yes. Right. And you watch and you said that big mushroom head one. What is that? That's like bizarre. Yeah. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that show. I don't know that I was a big fan of it, but on Saturdays, you'd watch anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's your next one, Bruce? All right. I'm going to Friday the 13th, but I don't know which one it would be. I just know that I was always scared about Jason being under the bed and then shoving a knife up through the mattress and into your heart. Whichever one that was, it might have been all of them. But that has made me never want to go to camp. I don't care if you said we're handing out gold bars at the camp. I will not go. That's the first one in particular. Somebody gets an arrow uh, shoved through the chest from underneath a uh, bed. And I, I actually just watched one of those last night. I watched uh, the sixth one, which is just a genuinely fun and like really goofy movie, but like a well-made goofy movie. Some, sometimes some of those later sequels in those horror franchises, they're goofy, but they're also just like really terribly made and it's not worth watching. But that one's like pretty goofy and kind of like knowing in its goofiness. So not, not as scary as uh, earlier ones. And I don't think would be the same kind of nightmarishness. So did you like it? Did you like Friday the 13th? You're the king of these. It's not my personal favorite. Um, I always thought Jason was a little bit uh, kind of boring as a, uh, as a horror villain compared to some of the other ones, but there, there's a couple of them that I like a lot. I like the, the first one quite a bit cause it's, it's pretty well made. Um, the fourth one, which has um, Corey Feldman in it, is like the main uh, protagonist, is really good. Um, there's there's some like little gems in there, but a lot of them are pretty miss as opposed to hit. Did they do thirteen, or did they come short of thirteen? No, they uh, including the uh, the uh, Freddy versus Jason movie and then the remake. There's only been twelve of them, so they're one away. Well, let's get that one out there. It could be set at Pee Wee's Playhouse, right? Yeah. Chris, how do you feel about those movies? I came to those really late. Um, like I I was certainly, I think, too young to have caught like the first wave of of slashers. 
And I think by the time that I was, you know, the age where they would have been hitting um, me, um, I think the world had kind of moved on a little bit from from slashers and the sort of video nasty type things. And so I I, I, I only saw Friday the 13th for the first time um, relatively recently. I think, honestly, the the first Freddy and or Jason movie I saw was freddie versus jason <laughs> yes and i saw that in the theater and i had a blast that one's a lot of fun yeah um i mean that, that's one where it's like it did exactly what it needed to do it had the perfect tone i certainly enjoy friday the 13th i think that there are a bunch of other you know movies from that era that maybe have a little bit more punch to them i'm thinking of like sleepaway camp another you know camp uh genre type thing it's, you know, when, when you want just inventive kills and it set the, uh, set the stage for everything that would, you know, come after more or less. Okay, Jared, if you have to pick one of the franchises, would you pick Halloween, Friday the 13th? Would you pick um, Nightmare on Elm Street? Which of those kind of big master franchises did you like the best? So uh, of the, the big ones, probably... Probably the Halloween movies because the the first one is my my favorite of those in general, and then some of the later sequels were actually pretty good for sequels, and then even the 2018 one I thought was fantastic. But of any of those franchises that stretch for quite a few movies, my favorite one uh, is probably the uh, Phantasm uh, franchise, which is just a really bizarre oh. yeah, bunch yeah, of yeah. movies. Mm-hmm. And I th- those are so great because those have some like. You know, they're they're outright horror movies, but they have the kinder trauma kind of thing of just like this kid trying to process growing up. And he's having to process it all through just this like nightmarish tall man that's haunting him. So those are really good. I think I only watched the first Phantasm, I don't know, like a year ago, maybe, give Mm -hmm. or take. And yeah, it was uh, it was good. It was a lot better than I expected it to be. So uh, my uh, my kinder trauma pick, uh, Chris, is a little bit similar to yours, especially uh, considering the lead in it. It's uh, Ernest Scared Stupid uh, from uh, <laughs> 1991. Um, that movie gave me uh, nightmares probably into my teenage years uh, entirely because of the design of the main troll uh, in that movie. But then also the kids in Ernest Scared Stupid like are in – a real degree of danger. Like it's a big dumb horror comedy. I know, but within the story, anyway, the kids are like in actual trouble. And for all intents and purposes, some of them basically die for a while in the movie, um, which is pretty messed up to have to sift through as a kid. You have to watch people be shrunken and uh, turned into totems for a menacing troll man. So that, yeah, even now, uh, like I, I watch that one every year or try to, and yeah, the, the design of the troll is just really repellent to me even now. <laughs> That's how I look on my Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the um, hey, there's something about like mid 80s to early, early 90s where people were gearing things towards kids and just not getting the tone right, where they just oh. over over cranked it. I mean, one of the things that has stuck with me, which I couldn't include with this because it's not a movie but there was a garfield halloween special where it's him and odie and they end up like on a boat and like travel to some island and there's this super creepy old man in the house and i remember being i mean it's it's garfield it's supposed to be this goofy cartoon 
And the tone of it is just way, way over what it needs to be. And it just hurt, (laughs) you know, as a kid. Can I ask, did you watch the other Ernest movies? Ernest Goes to Camp, the Christmas one, or did this kind of do you? No, I've I've seen most of them. I, I, yeah, I saw Ernest, you know, Goes to Camp, Ernest Goes to Jail, uh, be now very unfortunate. Ernest Goes to Africa, uh, Ernest in the Army, I Ernest Saves Christmas. I've seen every single one of the Ernest movies, I think. Slam Dunk Ernest. <laughs> so you liked him? I mean, most of the rest of them, like, even if I'm using, like, child nostalgia goggles, they, they suck. Uh, the only one I would probably still rewatch now, besides Ernest Scared Stupid, is maybe Ernest Goes to Camp. What do you mean, Burn? Yep. He was a Shakespearean actor, if you can believe that. And he was not at all like Ernest when you... Um, when you met him. He was very, very polite, very kind of cultured, if you will. But a lot of those ones who play goofy characters like that, that's kind of how they are. Well, it was the same with um, with Freddy Krueger. Right. Robert Englund. Yeah, Robert Englund was another, you know, Shakespearean trained actor who, you know, was just kind of this down on his luck guy um, who, you know, made his bones in, in horror once Wes Craven got him in there. And I mean, you figure that character wouldn't have worked with anybody else because I don't think anybody would have actually thrown themselves into it with the, the same amount of gusto that, that Robert England did. Not at all. Okay, Chris, what's your second one? My next one is you can find it on Disney plus of all places. This is from 1986. It is flight of the navigator. Flight of the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator. Um, it's about a little boy who is abducted by an alien, or like like an alien ship, I guess that's sentient, if I remember correctly. Um, oh, it looks like Paul Rubens was the um, was the voice of the ship actually as well. Uh oh. So takes this twelve year old kid. You know, they fly around space. He's got all of these other creatures that this ship has been picking up from um, you know other planets, and that was the scary part. There's there's a jump scare in there where you've got some kind of like, you know, little aliens that are cute and cuddly or whatever. But then there's one that is creepy and really freaky and jumps and the ship says like, oh, you know, he's having a bad attitude or something along those lines. And it's a legitimate, you know, freaky thing. But one of the framings of the film is that this kid comes back years later and he has and, and the child hasn't aged, but the family has. So his family is happy to see him back, but they've spent however many years dealing with the trauma of having their kid taken. That's the thing that I think has um, really stuck with me is that weird, you know, family separation aspect of it that, you know, makes it this, you know, really heartbreaking film uh, in in a lot of ways. And it was 86. When was E.T.? Was that 80, like 82, 82? Yeah. So this kind of would have been maybe writing like a similar E.T. vibe. It has, you know, a lot of the same kind of heartstrings moments to it, but I don't know. There's a certain, I don't know. It cuts me a little deeper uh, when I think about the family stuff in in Flight of the Navigator than the extraterrestrial ET in ET. Um, you know, going through all of his stuff. You mentioned ET, and I was at a a screening of it with a family of ET back in the, those days, and they brought their little son with. He was about five. And when, spoiler alert, uh, E.T. is dead, um, the kid was sobbing so hard he couldn't, he couldn't control himself. And they turned to me like I could 
I could help them out. And uh, they said, can you help us stop this? Do you know anything about is the kid, is the ET dead or what, what do we do? I said, look, it isn't even over yet. We've got at least another half hour left in this movie. So you know he's not dead. And then I had to talk the kid down from this trauma. But to this day, that kid really does not like E.T. And he's in his 40s. It's completely understandable. Yep. Well, and you know, they always relate that to it's it's the Jesus story. But, you know, next time you watch it, see if you see Jesus in E.T. <laughs> I, w- I will be looking. <laughs> I will be looking closely. Yeah. Okay, you ready for another one? Please. Yes. I'm picking Psycho only because it makes me freaked every time I take a shower in a shower curtain shower. Because I the idea that you could see a shadow or hear anything, and then it's the, all you can hear is that violin music that's in the movie where it's like, dee, 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 dee. and no, there's no way I will do that. Or I'll lock every door and every window if I'm in the bathroom and there's a shower curtain and not a shower door. Yeah, like Jaws never like ruined like going swimming in the ocean for me, but Psycho definitely ruined that for a while for me of even feeling safe taking a shower. (laughs) Isn't that weird? And really you saw nothing. It's all done in editing, but it's the idea. The two that most ruin stuff like that for me are definitely Psycho with taking a shower and then just Nightmare on Elm Street with falling asleep in general. Oh, yes, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah, Yeah, at some point I was maybe going to bring up um, the fact that, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street was one where the the concept of it was explained to me as as a kid. Like I hadn't even seen the film. It was just, Mm -hmm. you know, I had the the image of Freddy Krueger in my head from all the ads and whatnot. And then... um, yeah, just the idea of, oh, he's in your dreams. So that that line between conscious and and, and an unconscious state being permeated by a potentially uh, not exactly benevolent force was, you know, I mean, it, it definitely kept me up for, for a while. I, I remember that. I think it makes it worse when you, like, hear about these kind of things as a kid but don't have any actual context for it. It makes it so much worse mm-hmm. because I, I definitely had a similar thing with Freddy Krueger and a lot of those other ones at the time. I only saw, like I said, I only saw, you know, the cover art at, like, Blockbuster or whatever and had no other context, and that was, you know, more than freaky enough. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Psycho, uh, the film based on a novel by Robert Block, who uh, is a Milwaukee native, I will say. Really? Yeah, yeah, he's from Milwaukee. He had a, um, as is uh, Arkham House, which I think published a bunch of his stuff, uh, as well as uh, was one of the first, you know, places to publish um, uh, H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. Um, um and uh yeah i think they are based out of sauk city wisconsin so nice little uh wisconsin connection well there's and, your archival uh, moment for the day right yep. yeah and the um and well it's kind of it's loosely based on ed gein i believe yep. who was another uh wisconsin gentleman of of less <laughs> uh good repute <laughs> You're admitting that a lot of people in uh, Wisconsin could be psychos because you got a lot of uh, attention there. We got a lot. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, yeah, like, Wisconsin I mean, is a, a proud uh, history of serial killers. Well, maybe not proud. <laughs> let's let's, let's <laughs> slow our roll just a little there. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was Ed Gein. Uh, Dahmer was Milwaukee. Did Norman Bates do a podcast? <laughs> 
he's not that much of a weirdo. Okay. <laughs> okay, Jared, what's your next one? Um, so this this is not one that really you know traumatized me as a kid or anything. And actually, I only just finally uh, got around to seeing it um, uh, near the start of the month because I've been watching at least one horror movie a night, if not more. And that's um, The Exorcist Three from uh, 1990 by uh, William Peter Blatty which is the owner of what I think is probably the best delivered and most earned uh, jump scare in any movie ever period. Um, there's, there's and there's nothing cheap about the jump scare either. It's really well set up and it's definitely, like I said, it's very well earned. Um, and the exorcist three really kind of plays out as like an even more disturbing and I think better made version of seven, even though it was a couple of years before seven came out. Um, Cause it's also a, a police procedural but um, Blatty, the way he directs it, like just bludgeons you with like imagery that's not exactly surreal, but it's also not stuff you've really seen before. And it, I, I think it's a better acted movie too than the uh, the first Exorcist movie is. So it's, I, I absolutely love it. And I'm glad I finally got around to seeing it because it, it is well worth watching. And it kind of sucks that it has to be called The Exorcist 3 because I know that's going to keep some people away. But you you can watch the you don't even really need to watch the first one to appreciate the third one and you definitely can just ignore the second one forever and just let that go to the dustbin of uh, history. You know when the original one came out, I had to see it. It was one of those things where I'd read the book, I wanted to see the movie, and I was sick, but I wasn't going to give up on it because I still thought I needed to go to this. So let this be a lesson during the coronavirus pandemic. But I had pills in my in my coat, and for some reason. They fell out of my, the bottle fell out of my coat and rolled all the way down to the front of the theater. And so I had to run down there and get the pills while, the, while her head is turning around and she's vomiting all over the place. <laughs> and she was saying other kinds of things too, but I can't use them on the podcast. Oh God, oh God, no. So talk about scary. I was sick and I almost lost all my pills because of that. Got to get those pills. You bet. Pills are the best thing, especially when you can't remember, when you don't want to have the the Freddy Kruegers in your mind or anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Chris, what's your third film? My third film um, is the first one. I, I think like the next, th- like this and, and the two after that are pretty much outright scary films. Um, whereas my first two, I think were more in that kinder trauma uh, realm. But uh, this is a movie from 1997. It is uh, directed by Michael uh, Haneke, Haneke, Ooh. and it is a movie called Funny Games. Yes. Um, it was remade uh, about 10 years later, around like uh, 2007, I think thereabouts, uh, starring um, Naomi Watts. And it is, as far as I'm concerned, the home invasion movie to end all home invasion movies. Um, you have a family. Uh, father, mother, son, uh, that are, uh, you know, vacationing at a cabin and these two teenage boys kind of, uh, end up infiltrating their house, take over in this, uh, you know, it starts off kind of innocent enough. And then the tension just ramps up very, very quickly. Um, and these are, you know, the, the, the two, uh, you know, teenage boys who are afflict- inflicting all of the, uh, the, you know, pain and torture on this family um, are just absolute status. 
in in the most you know dire psychological way um and yeah and it is it has one of the most harrowing uh long takes uh in the in the middle of it which i I won't give away but it is um yeah it is it is a movie that just absolutely uh it, it 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 leaves a mark um and I, I, I recently rewatched it, uh, for, you know, to kind of prepare for, for this and it has not lost any of its punch. It, yeah, it, it just absolutely stings, uh, in, in a way that is hard to really quantify. Yeah. That, that's one of those ones that you finish and you just like exhale. (laughs) Yeah. You absolutely have to, you know, kind of take a break. Like you can't, you can't really do much after that. Um, and it's, uh, I know Michael Henneke, uh, he, he he said that he he originally wanted it to be kind of a play, uh, you know, commentary on violence on television, and that that was the inspiration behind these kids doing whatever. And I don't know if he necessarily, you know, sticks the landing on making that connection overt in the film, but it is just absolutely uh, traumatizing and heartbreaking, and yeah, kind of along the same lines of. Uh, Bruce, you mentioned, um, you know, the way that Hitchcock would treat some of his female actresses. I feel like the uh, the woman who plays the mother is definitely put upon in some uh, pretty intense ways. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this movie comes with a, you know, uh, a very, very significant trigger warning for pretty much anything that you could be triggered uh, bye. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to really say it. It is, it is just an intense, uh, film. Do you remember who's in it? Um, the, so the remake, which I have not seen, but the remake from 2007, uh, was Naomi Watts, Tim Roth, a young Michael Pitt. Um, but the 1997 version, um, it's a, um, primarily Austrian. An Austrian cast. Yeah. Um, Ulrich, uh, Mua, Mura? Um, Suzanne Lothar, Arno Frisch, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, did the, you see the, the newer version or not? I have not seen the newer version. The The newer one is, yeah, also Michael Haneke. And it's basically a shot for shot, uh, remake. Yeah. Which is interesting. Cause I mean that, you know, for him to basically say, this is the one movie that I'm going to remake for an American audience and, you know, specifically an audience that can't get over subtitles. Yep. And, and it's, it is just, I mean, it's almost sadistic in and of itself for him to have made that (laughs) the, (laughs) you know, the thing that he's like, this is a movie that I want to make sure that, you know, both sides of the Atlantic ocean can appreciate. (laughs) I'm afraid to ever watch the remake because I think there's something to the, the one that's with the most, mostly Austrian cast. You don't really know who any of those people are if you're just a typical American viewer. And that makes it even like more believable and more horrifying because you don't have, you know, pre relationship, pre-existing relationships with any of these characters or any of these uh, actors. And that is on, um, if anybody wants to watch that, that's on uh, the Criterion channel. You know, if I am going to see something that uh, I know is going to be scary, I will go in the afternoon. I don't want to have to deal with it at night where it's going to stick with you the whole time. You think, oh, my God, I'm going to be dead um, from this. So if I watch it in the afternoon, I still have time to kind of cleanse the palate and and 
maybe not be as scared because I'm still scared by things. And on my list will be one that you'll know what I mean. Um, my next one, fatal attraction. Mm. Oh my God. When she says, I'm not going to be ignored. <laughs> that is like, get out and run now. <laughs> you don't even need the bunny to boil on the, on the stove at all. And she, what's so kind of scary about all that is that she's very much like people, you know, and all it takes is just one loose screw and you're off in that direction. <clears throat> and I thought she was brilliant in that and it, she should have won an Oscar for it. Um, but they don't like to give Oscars to horror films for the most part. Yeah. You know, right. it's, like, it's like fantasy films. They don't like to give them Oscars either, but she was just amazing. I had done interviews with her during the, I was on the junket for fatal attraction. And just to be clear by her, you mean Glenn Close, Glenn right? Close, okay. Glenn Close. Yeah. And she said that because she was, she wanted to kind of build this performance. So you didn't see her as kind of this nut job right away that she was like just anybody that you'd know. Um, she said she marks her script like it's a score and she'll mark where she needs to be a little, a little high pitched, a little lower so that then you don't get that. She said, you look at my scripts and it's all full of all these different colors of highlighters that I use. And then I know immediately what I have to do for that. And I thought that was a real fascinating way to approach, approach an acting role is by, you know, looking at it before figuring out what you want to do and then make sure that that's the stuff you do when you actually play the role. And this was kind of the, like the pinnacle of the, you know, quote unquote, erotic thriller. Well, and then didn't we get um, the one with uh, Sharon Stone after that? Basic mm -hmm. Instinct. Basic Instinct, yep. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Fatal Attraction, the, that director, Adrian Lynn, I've talked about him on here before with uh, Jacob's Ladder, which is another, you know, fantastic movie and also <laughs> very terrifying and uh, disturbing that will linger with mm -hmm. But yeah. uh, not not quite as erotic as a uh, fatal attraction. For the best, maybe. <laughs> you see my you see my life though is I'm locking the basement. I don't want to have anything underneath my bed. I won't go to a shower. And now, if a woman comes with a knife in the kitchen, watch out. <laughs> if you've gotten to that point, like you've you've probably dodged a few uh, red flags already. <laughs> Well, wait till you get to my last one and you'll say, oh, I know. You can see it's just an age thing. As I'm going along, it's at what age am I that I'm feeling these traumas? It's not just kids. Because you go back and you look at something like Bambi. And Bambi is a scary movie, if you think about it. Because if you understand that mom is dead, that's tough for a kid to, to really deal with. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, but I see different things at different ages. So Fatal Attraction is my fourth nominee i appreciate that bruce you are slowly basically making different parts of your house un uninhabitable can't go in the basement can't go in the kitchen can't uh go in the shower can't go in the bed like the <laughs> it's basically the living room for me right now well and if you watched um if you watched funny games the living room would also be ruined for you so you yeah. got nowhere to go so then i'd be in the garage and i've got to watch those garage films then my next pick um is just one of my favorite movies ever and it's a uh, texas chainsaw massacre from 1974 um it really makes me happy that a lot of people are seeing this now for the first time because it's on uh, the criterion channel right now for their like uh october horror movies um, 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, and The Shining are all right there for my favorite horror movies ever. And this one maybe slightly edges those out. Um, I think even now it's easily one of the most um, disturbing movies someone could watch. It's really not that um, violent or gory, even though it has always kind of had that perception of that, because there's not that really many deaths in it. And none of them, I think, are particularly gruesome. But the, the final stretch of the movie is just this like true descent into hell or into the, the mouth of madness, as uh, Lovecraft would say. And it, it just feels like genuinely dangerous filmmaking, which I think is something that you want from a horror movie. Um, like it, it, it's sweaty and it's like, you know, just like rendered in very strange ways in parts of the movie. And uh, I remember going to the actual house that it was filmed in. And uh, funnily enough, it's now a restaurant, which is uh, perfect if you've uh, seen the movie and know uh, what the uh, family is into in terms of family trade. Um and even just being there in like a restaurant setting, you know, completely removed from what that house was originally uh, used in the movie for, um, it, w- it was still very, very disturbing. And, you know, even seeing that movie for the first time um, and then having to go through a road trip through Texas and, you know, just these long stretches of highway with nothing, just worrying like, oh, God, if my car breaks down, I'm, I'm screwed. I'm going to get like preyed upon by a uh, cannibal family. So. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was the the perfect evolution of the last house on the left. Yep. Um, which is very similar um, in the, you know, just absolute chaos added to, um, you know, the the death of, 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 of you know, hippiedom, I guess. Um, <clears throat> it's very much a, you know, Altamont generation as opposed to, um, you know, a, a Woodstock generation. Yeah. That's one where I, I watched it once a while ago and I'm, yeah, it, 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 it lingers with you, man. And the sequels are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the second movie is some of the most fun that you can have. I think watching, I mean, there's a chainsaw fight with um, Dennis Hopper. You can't do better than that. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're polar opposites, but still very uh you know similar enough and just a ton of fun there's an auction now where you can buy leatherface's mask the original one yeah so if you want it it's out there okay we're going on to you chris what's next my fourth one is uh maybe a little bit close to home right now but it is contagion oh <laughs> um contagion uh came out uh what was it? i mean just a few years ago really i mean it was um what like mid two thousands? I think twenty. Um, uh, yeah, two thousand eleven. Yeah, two thousand eleven. We and we, uh, you know, I think talked about this early on in the in the show, um, our show, uh, just to be nominated uh, when the uh, coronavirus was just kind of uh, kicking in, and it seems like Contagion, uh, the film, is pretty accurate more or less about how things spread um, the, the way that misinformation has been uh, maybe weaponized, I suppose, or at least politicized. Um, and um, yeah, it's another, you know, just incredible Steven Soderbergh film, uh, an ensemble cast that just really nails every aspect of it. It's frightening how, how close it is to the actual, uh, you know, roots of, of coronavirus with it being, you know, bats, 
you know, that, that are infecting, you know, meat that goes into a market in China. <laughs> I mean, all the way down to everything. And uh, from what I understand, the only aspect of it, like technically and scientifically speaking, that Soderbergh and the writers and producers and everybody um, did was, uh, you know, they just sped it up to where it spread a little bit faster. And then the vaccine was, you know, introduced in the film, I guess, maybe spoiler warning, um, what was introduced, you know, years faster than it would have been normally. And it's a, it's a script by Scott Z. Burns, uh, who's done uh, a bunch of other really great uh, Soderbergh movies. How does it end? Will we get out of this? How does it end? Um, it ends with a vaccine uh, being introduced, but it's... Uh, but no. you don't know how it turns out. I mean, there's still, you know, mass graves. Um, you know, I mean, I like, I remember early on in, you know, was it April, May that, you know, aerial footage of the, you know, the mass graves in New York um, was, you know, going around and that's pretty much right out of contagion. Um, and the, the way that the vaccine is distributed, um, is, is also a thing that we probably have to look forward to in the future. Um, maybe, maybe look forward to is the wrong phrasing, but, um, uh, yeah, or look forward to definitely because it will stop people from, you know, dying and, and catching coronavirus, but the way that it's going to be rolled out, um, with, you know, there being not enough for everyone to get it. It's not like everyone is going to get the vaccine in their mailbox on the exact same day. Um, and yeah, there are aspects of that towards the end of, of contagion. It's just, it's a, it's, it, it's really topical and um, it is equally scary and it, it definitely captures a lot of, you know, what we're going through right now. Should we watch it now? I think so. I mean, I, I watched it for the first time earlier this year when things were, you know, when, when, when staying at home as opposed to going to work was still kind of a novel experience. Uh, as opposed to now when it's just a, you know, the dull, um, you know, thudding of, you know, from, from bed to your, your desk, you know, the 30 feet or whatever it is between those two. Um, so yeah. Um, I, I, I liked it. I recommend it. And, um, yeah, it's, I mean, all in all, it's just, it's, it's a well-made movie and it is scary as hell, uh, given the context of where we're at right now. To me, almost the scariest part of that movie, after you've been through the whole entire thing, is just the the flashback at the very end to how everything like got started in that movie, um, because that's exactly how it ends. It ends with the uh, the spillover event where like a it's like a Rube Goldberg machine, but for uh, for disease, where like a bulldozer like knocks over some palm trees, which like you know shakes up some bats, and then those bats end up in a pig farm and then, you know, it just go from there. Yeah. And the meat gets into a market and the meat is then like touched by somebody who touches somebody who then touches, I think Gwyneth Paltrow who was in China yep. on work and having an affair. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much of that is spoilers, but it's a, uh, yeah, the, the chain of events is also um, kind of eerily similar to the way that things supposedly played out. Um, you know, with, with the origins of, of this, you know, virus, um, that we are dealing with in real life. Okay. We're ready for my last one. Hit it. I know you guys love this movie. I know you love it, but for me, it 
just sent chills up my spine. And it's probably because they were dumping old people off the edge of a cliff. <laughs> and that's midsummer. I thought, oh my God, this could so happen. And I think it's keeping me away from <laughs> Scandinavian countries just because I don't want to be kicked off the edge because they don't want me around anymore. So my last one is midsummer. You see how it's an aging thing for me? And I think some of those scenes, even the one where um, they use the young man to impregnate the cult member, the main I mean, the caller, but um, that was scary. And I thought, oh my God, if you could be caught in this whole situation, you'd go, oh, what do I, how the hell do I get out of here? Very well made though. I, I think I've maybe talked about this before with that movie, which I absolutely love. And it's one of my favorites from last year. Um, I, one thing that's so great about it is like, you know, for the, for the Americans that are there, what they're going through is just absolute hell. But like by the end of the movie, the cult, like they're happy and they're like joyous and like, it's so even more so maybe than like how the wicker man kind of ends the the end for midsummer which i won't spoil there could not be more of a contrast between the cult members and then the rest of the people because like it's a happy ending for them and it's just this huge release and like the music is even swelling at the end of the movie but for everybody else it's just horrifying and that's another one that fits the the idea of um and all all of Ari Aster's films so far have kind of touched on this where it's you know, horror film as processing grief and trauma. Come on, Jared, get me out of Midsummer. I don't want to be kicked over the edge. Uh, well, this, this is not much of a reprieve. <laughs> uh, it's another movie from um, 1974, but instead of being deep in the heart of Texas, it is uh, our neighbor to the north of Canada. It's Black Christmas, um, which was uh, directed by Bob Clark of a uh, Christmas story and Porky's fame. Um and if uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the most disturbing and maybe the best horror movie ever made, I think Black Christmas is easily the scariest. Um, it's one of the first ones that forces the audience into the POV of the killer, um, which is terrifying enough. But then it never really gives the viewer a sense of motive, which I think kind of makes things even worse. And then Bob Clark, the, the, the conceit of the movie is basically there's a uh, unhinged, um, unnamed killer in the attic of a uh, sorority house during um, the Christmas season, you know, as people are kind of going home um, for winter break. And so the, the sorority house is mostly empty. And so Bob Clark kind of uses the quietude um, and the, the vastness of this like central house to just perfect effect. Um, it's unnervingly calm in the house, despite there being a killer loose. And, you know, the house is so old and so big that you really don't have a good way of kind of knowing where the killer could be. It's a, a proto slasher, but, you know, be, because it kind of was writing the rules for slashers before they existed, it takes a lot of its own beats. And I think it works really well. And it, it's just really, really scary and really well made. And the first time I watched it, I made the mistake of watching it my freshman year of uh, college right before winter break when there weren't that many people left in the dorms. And I could not sleep after watching it. There's just something about that movie. So um, if you like horror movies and haven't seen Black Christmas, you absolutely need to. All right, Chris, that got us into the holiday mood. What's your last <laughs> one? Um, my last one is a movie from 2015. Uh, it is uh, the the third feature film from a director, a writer director named Jeremy Saulnier. He you know broke into 
the mainstream with a movie called Blue Ruin. Uh, and this was his follow-up called Green Room. Yes. Um, which is, it follows a, a punk rock band uh, who are, you know, just kind of playing house shows, whatever, and they're on tour and they end up playing this one show that they've been booked on that ends up being at a white power skinhead uh, encampment, sort of a, like a ranch uh, out in the middle of nowhere. And then uh, all hell breaks loose and then they have to more or less escape. And I don't know what it is, but the way that the the violence is filmed in this is so shocking and so um, affecting box cutters are used and things like that, um, in, in ways that, uh, are, yeah, I, I, by now I've seen a ton of, you know, violence on film and whatever. And this just, it feels way more real and visceral than just about any, anything else that I've, I've seen great film, uh, that's, the tension kind of starts from the beginning and it just gets ramped up and up and up. And, uh, along the way it, you know, in, in, in the same way as funny games, um, sort of a, a, a reverse, uh, home invasion. Uh, and yeah, the, the things that are done to people in this film are, you know, very, very affecting. It's one of those ones that like, the tension too just very naturally ratchets up. The way one thing kind of spills into the next is is totally believable, and I think the movie's better for that. Yeah, it's equal parts, you know, character and plot driven. Like it's not nothing feels manufactured, um, and yeah, it's uh, it's tremendous. Highly recommended. Yes. Well, look at that trauma. That's all wrapped up into fifteen films. Yeah. Bruce, I know you get access to stuff before anybody else does uh, with your your your, your credit credit hat. Or your, I uh, have a, a few of them in the queue, but last night I watched Love and Monsters. Have you seen that one yet? Dylan um, O'Brien, he's uh, he was in the Maze Runner, if you remember that. He plays a, a guy in a post-apocalyptic world where ninety is it ninety five percent of the population has died. And they're living in bunkers, and he's kind of the the least heroic of all the bunch. He actually is the cook for the hmm. people that are under the thing. But they they cast him out, and he's got to try and survive against these huge insects and kind of mutant monsters to try and get to someplace else that they're looking for to get out of here. Um, there's a little quiet place to it, but it's funny. It's a funny film, Zombie Land. You'd think of too. Um, and it's not bad. It's okay. in theaters. If you have them in theaters, that's gone there now. So I've seen that. And then I've been looking at new series too, because there's some new ones coming out. A teacher, which is about a high school teacher who starts an affair with one of her students and how that is a fatal attraction situation. Um, and that'll be coming in November on FX, I believe. So that's what I've been watching. How about you, uh, Jared? It's still until we get to Halloween and maybe even a little bit after. It's uh, horror movies all the way. So, um, like I said, last night I watched uh, Hall- or, uh, not Halloween, wow, um, Friday the 13th, uh, 6th. The, uh, the night before that, I watched a movie called Funland, which is about a, um, a, a guy who plays a uh, clown at an amusement park who basically snaps uh, after he gets fired. Um, so it's, yeah, horror movies all the way for me right now. Solid. For this episode, I've been uh, watching a bunch of stuff that I, I haven't seen before. 
Um, and I, one of the things I got around to finally seeing was uh, the new movie Host. Mm. Mm-hmm. Kind of a ghost haunting uh, possession type thing that takes place entirely on a, a Zoom call. And it is, uh, it's 56 minutes long, so it is super short. Uh, also happens to be uh, just about as long as a free Zoom call can be, <laughs> which is, you know, perfect aesthetically speaking. And yeah, that was probably the best usage of of that kind of found footage uh, webcam, uh, you know, scenario that I've seen so far. And it also, you know, has a whole, you know, quarantine COVID angle to it that is uh, really good. And yeah, it's uh, just super creepy. Uh, probably one of the one of the best newer horror films that I've seen uh, in a long, long time. So um, I recommend that. Next week, there's also Spell that'll be coming to theaters. And it's a horror film about a guy whose plane crashes and he has to deal with the trauma of being in. Uh, let me look and see if I can figure out. Was it Georgia? But that is an actual horror film that's coming to theaters. Where, where can people find you? What have you been up to? What have you got uh, in the hopper? Right now, I'm actually finishing a, uh, a story for the weekend that I'm pretty happy with how it's going to turn out. Um, basically, just about how the uh, the bar scene kind of is here uh, right now. And it basically just gave me an excuse to do a lot more uh, narrative uh, stuff with a lot more color to it. So I'm going to be happy with that. Uh, and then outside of work and outside of movies, uh, today ended up being a really good day for uh, new music because there's a new Bruce Springsteen album out. So I'm going to be blasting that uh, plenty. But then there's also some new albums by the Mountain Goats, who I love. And then um, this uh, compilation by this label that um, a couple of the people on it originally did the music for Drive. And so it's all just very well made, like synth heavy music. So I'm looking forward to uh, putting that on and uh, driving around late at night because that's what that kind of music is made for. So Bruce? Well, we've always got the scariest reality show of all called The Election Day coming up. <laughs> so be ready for that. And let's see what else is happening. Um, you know, that one the odd thing that I've been looking at is the uh, theater world, that's been going dark for the most part. Mm-hmm. And um, they asked me if I would do a voice in the War of the Worlds. What? And so I taped a voice for a local production of War of the Worlds that are going to air on Halloween night. And um, I think I'm the crazy person. Is that's not the... Uh, the correct title or what but that'll be coming on halloween night so i've done that so i know what i'm going to do on halloween not go out <laughs> and um the things i've been watching uh i interviewed a woman from here who's uh in a she was in a broadway play before it closed down and um she was nominated for a tony last week so hmm. i'm looking at those kinds of things and seeing what actually did we miss fantastic uh, as far as extracurricular stuff i've been reading a ton of like old crime noir like type stuff. Um, Perfect. A whole bunch of old like uh, Donald Westlake, um, which I know I've talked about in the past, and I've I've started uh, buying up a bunch of uh, a whole uh, lots of uh, hard case crime books on um, on eBay. Uh, hard case crime is a series that's you know been republishing old stuff as well as newer things. There's been a handful of Stephen King books that have come out through there. Um, and, uh, yeah, as well as other, other odds and ends. So I love it. Love it. Love it. Keep them in the basement or you'd keep them under the bed. 
Um, I have some in the basement and then I've got, um, yeah, the others are just kind of floating around. So that's it. As always, Bruce, what's our... Uh, See something good. That's right. See something good. All right. Well, that is the show. And also that was the show because this was an archival episode. We'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about. So check those out there. Also links to where you can connect with us and all that good stuff. And like we always say around here, see something good. See something good. Yo it to yourself. See something good. We will be back next week with some more fun stuff. Tune in then. Make sure you're subscribed. Give a rating. Tell a friend. See you soon.